Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 23 on page 831. So turn there, and we're going to uh, continue our journey through the arrest, trial, crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to look particularly this morning at Jesus and how he interacts with the two criminals uh, that are crucified next to him on the cross, the one that's repentant and the one that is unrepentant, and we're going to consider their, um, their situations. But like I said, we've been working through pretty much for all of Lent and even from a little bit before Lent, we've been working through the de- arrest, trial, crucifixion of Jesus, looking at Jesus uh, praying on the Mount of Olives. He's betrayed by uh, Judas, his, uh, one of his closest confidants. He, uh, Judas leads a contingent of armed guards to come and arrest Jesus. Uh, Jesus is bound like a, like a criminal. He's brought to the, the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, they have a, have a trial there in the middle of the night. They're pushing for capital punishment. They're pushing to, to have Jesus executed, but they don't have the authority in and of themselves to do that. So they uh, take Jesus to Pontius Pilate the next morning. Um, Pilate doesn't really want to weigh in, doesn't really want to be a part of this. So he sends Jesus to Herod for another trial, his third trial that day. Uh, Herod doesn't really want to, to make a decision or weigh in, so he sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. And now Pontius Pilate is finally in this situation where he has to make a decision. He has to kind of, uh, you know, say where, you know, what he has to kind of put his chips in, so to speak. So, so Pilate acquiesces to the crowd and sentences Jesus to death. He's, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's taken to the site of his crucifixion, he's nailed to the cross, he's, he's hanging, suspended in midair as his life is slowly coming to an end. And that's where we see this interchange between Jesus and these two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And what we're going to see... You know, this is one of the, you know, especially if you've been in the church a long time, you're probably familiar with a lot of the stories in the Bible, familiar with a lot of the episodes, a lot of the the narratives in the Bible. And so this is one of those stories where, you know, we might be at risk of being overly familiar and kind of missing the significance, right? Uh, Failing to see how remarkable and how scandalous this story truly is. And so my, my hope for us this morning is to read this text, but to look at it, consider it with fresh eyes, to try to get into the headspace of um, what's really happening, what's transacting between uh, Jesus and these people, and to kind of really be a, a impacted by and affected by uh, just the, the significance of, of what's happening here. I want to look at the, the violence and the hatred behind the ridicule from the first thief. The, the boldness and the audacity of the request of the second thief, and then the, the extravagance and the grace of the response from, from Jesus. So let's read these four verses, five verses, and, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning uh, longing to, hoping to, expecting to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would use this text Use these next few minutes to show us our sin and where we can repent, right? Remind us and assure us of your grace so that we might rest in it. We pray that you would use your word in our lives to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. One of the criminals who were hanged with Jesus railed at him. It's a a fairly... You know, the, the, the scene uh, at a typical crucifixion site in Rome was not one of, you know, there was a lot of antagonism, right? The, the, the people, I mean, the, the people who were crucified, unlike maybe what you see in a lot of uh, imagery, Jesus probably wasn't, and, and most crucifixion victims weren't uh, really high up in the air. They were probably lower to the ground so that you could make eye contact with them and, and jeer at them and, and mock them. Most people that were there were lowlifes and, and just, uh, just scoundrels, and so they enjoy, they, they, you know, similar to how you would uh, enjoy watching gladiators fight to the death in the Colosseum, they would enjoy and kind of make sport of this execution that was happening. And, and the, the people who were being crucified, in turn, were also, you know, they were, it was a vile scene. Most of them would scream uh, profanities and all kinds of curses and swears at the, the people that were there. You know, you, it's like, um, you know, it's like if you go into like a, a prison interacting with people who are on death row or people who have been sentenced to life without parole and they have no incentive to act with any modicum of, of decency, right? They're, they're, it's like they're thinking, uh, nothing bad that I do, this situation is as bad as it could possibly be. So nothing bad that I do could possibly make it any worse. And there's a 0% chance of my situation being uh, made better. So nothing I do good could, could make it any better. And so uh, you can just kind of let your selfish and sinful nature kind of go unchecked. And that was often what happened with crucifixions, yelling, screaming, antagonism on both sides. And so when this criminal begins railing at Jesus, it's not necessarily out of the ordinary. It's kind of par for the course of what you might expect at the site of a crucifixion where multiple people are being, are being executed. He's hanging. He rails at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. 
Strikingly similar, if you look back to just the passage prior uh, in verse 35, uh, similar to what the religious rulers are saying. In verse 36, it's similar to what the, the soldiers are saying. So Jesus is kind of hearing and receiving the same taunt, the same ridicule, the same jeer over and over and over. They all want to point out the irony that Jesus claims to be the Christ. He claims to be God. He claims to be king. And yet here he is dying on a cross, Right? Experiencing something that no Messiah would ever experience, no king would ever experience. So they're, they're mocking him, right? It, go ahead, save yourself, right? There, there's this sense of, we know you can't do it, so we're going to go ahead and invite you to do it as a way to, to mock you and humiliate you even further. That's kind of been what's been happening in verses 35 and 36 with these other guys, and that's what's happening here too. It's sarcasm, it's insult, but I, I think it's part sarcasm, part insult, but maybe there's a, there's a, a thread in, in with this criminal where he is actually serious, where he's saying, you know, part of me wants to insult you and humiliate you like everyone else is, but part of me wants to say, if you really are the Christ, then save yourself and while you're at it, uh, save, save us too. The only part of the unrepentant thief on the cross that appears to have any interest in Jesus is, is, you know, what can he offer to me? Maybe you're the Christ, maybe you're not, I don't know, I don't really care, but can you save me from, can you alleviate the, the pain and suffering that I am currently experiencing. That's all I care about. If you, can't, if you can't save me, if you can't improve my station right here, right now, if you cannot do that, then I don't care if you're God or not. It doesn't matter to me. But if you can save me from this suffering, if you can make my life better, if you can improve my circumstances, then sure, fine. I'll say that you're God. I'll say that you are Christ. I'll say that I'll say that you're a banana. I don't care what, I'll say anything that I have to say in order for you to give me the thing that I want right now. The criminal cares more about his own situation and his needs and his preferences and his desires than he cares about Jesus and the claims that Jesus has made. In his eyes, Jesus is at best, at worst he's someone that I could care less about, don't believe in, he's a, a lunatic dying on the cross, but at best Jesus, to this first unrepentant thief, is a means to an end. I have something I want. I want my suffering to end. I want to come down off the cross. And so I will, if Jesus can do that for me, then great. I would love for him to do that. Which might be more familiar to us than we'd care to admit. This idea of Jesus is a means to an end rather than an end in himself. Jesus is not, you know, uh, the God who has made claims as God on my life, but rather he's a, a person who may or may not be able to give me what I want, give me the life that I want, the spouse that I want, the job that I want, the, the status that I want. Fine, Jesus, I'm, I'm happy to sign on the dotted line. Say whatever you want me to say, as long as I get the things that I want out of the, out of the deal. Guys, our, 
Our sinful nature is constantly whispering in our ear that Jesus, Jesus exists to do our will. Jesus' top priority is to make sure that our preferences are accommodated to our liking. It's not true. The reality is, Jesus uh, does not exist to glorify us, do our will. Jesus is the sovereign king. He created us. He does not answer to us. We answer to him. He does not exist to make much of us. We exist to make much of, of him. Knowing Jesus knowing Jesus, and being reconciled to Jesus, it, there is benefit that comes from it. All right? uh, full disclosure... Trusting in Jesus is better than not knowing Jesus. Being reconciled to Jesus uh, and, and having your sins forgiven and having your eternity secured by Jesus is, in fact, better than the alternative. But it's a better that comes on Jesus' terms rather than on our terms, right? Better. The better life that we get from, from being with Jesus is not the better life that we might expect, right? House in the suburbs, picket fence, Two kids and a dog, whatever, right? Jesus is the one who sets the terms on what better is. So when he says, I promise you a life that is abundant and that is full, he's the one who gets to define what abundant life is. He's the one who defines what a full life is. And it looks very different than what the world says an abundant life is. It has everything to do with having your eternity secured and having your sins forgiven and being reconciled to the God with whom you were formerly at enmity than it does about having your preferences met and and your uh, worldly desires accommodated. John MacArthur says this about the, the costliness of discipleship. I think it's fitting here. He says, Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that you and I could have a nice day. Too many people just want a a Madison Avenue Jesus who will make them well, make them happy, make them prosperous, but Jesus is not a personal genie. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died in agony to satisfy the wrath of a holy God and to forgive the sins of humankind. Faith in Jesus demands a willingness to make any sacrifice that he asks. The hard truth about Christianity is that the cost is high, but the rewards are priceless. Abundant and eternal life that comes only from faithfully following Christ. This first criminal that we see in verse 39 has no category for that kind of a relationship with Christ. One that's costly, one that is uh, seemingly indifferent to my temporal, present tense, right now, desires, preferences, but rather one that's concerned about uh, my eternity and my relationship with, with God. Right? First criminal is saying... Jesus, I I am suffering. Make it stop. Are you not the Christ? Are you not God? Right? My my life is not going the way that I want it to go. I want you to fix it. I want to get my way. I expect to get my way. I expect for people to defer to me and do what I want them to do. And we live in a world that that kind of selfish 
thinking is promoted, right? Uh, the, the customer is always right. So, so whatever you want, we'll have it brought to you right away. As long as you, you know, keep your tab open, keep your credit card on file. The, the world we live in, right? Uh, consumerism, advertising, give the people what they want so that they will keep coming back. If we're not careful, we can take that same air that we breathe in the culture that we live. I'm the customer. I'm always right. We can bring it into our relationship with God and say, like this first criminal, sure, fine, I'll believe in you. Right? Are you not the criminal? Yeah, fine. I'll believe in you as long as you give me what I want. Give me happiness. Give me success. Instead of saying, you are, I'm not God, you are God. Right? You are the king, I am not the king. Your will should be done, my will should not be done. I owe you my life, you don't owe me anything. Anything that you've given me up until now has been grace, nothing that I deserve or am entitled to. This first criminal is... Has, has adopted the spirit of the world, that Jesus exists to do his will instead of vice versa. What he's also done, if you think about it, and we kind of parse the words, is he is trading his eternity, or he's at least attempting to, trade his eternity for his, his temporary, the, the temporary alleviation of his, his sufferings. Think about it. His, the two things that he's saying for Jesus to do, I want you to save yourself and save us. Save yourself and save us. Save us makes sense, right? That's pretty straightforward. Get me down off of this cross. The pain that I'm experiencing, make it stop. But consider the implications of the first part to save yourself, right? Save yourself and save us. If Jesus saves himself, meaning if Jesus gets down off of the cross, if Jesus abandons the mission that he is on, to die in place of sinners, to satisfy the wrath of God for their sin. If Jesus saves himself, then then sin will not be atoned for. Sinners cannot be saved. Sinners cannot be reconciled to God. We spend eternity apart from God under the wrath of God. So what he's saying is, I don't care about... If, if you will save me right now from this suffering that I'm experiencing, then I would trade that. I, go ahead and get off the cross. Whatever you're accomplishing on it, on my behalf, I couldn't care less about that. What I want more is for you to get me off of this cross right now. So I will gladly trade my eternity for my suffering to end right now, for my preferences to be met right now. Jesus, I am less concerned with you dying in my place for my sin, saving me from wrath and hell, than I am concerned with you ending my momentary affliction and suffering that I'm experiencing right now. He's taken on the spirit of the world that has no care for eternity and that has, that his, whose only concern is for his preferences what he's experiencing right now in the, in the moment. If we're not careful, we can adopt that same spirit of the world as this 
thief on the crosses. We can import what he says and what we can import his same heart posture into our relationship with God. We also import his same heart posture into our relationship with the church. All of a sudden, the church becomes another product that I consume. I want to be entertained. I want things to be my way. I want this genre of music. I want uh, the preaching, you know, sermons should be this long. Uh, Don't talk about these topics because they make me uncomfortable, right? Take all the topics that I don't struggle with and that I judge other people in the world. Talk about them all you want. But don't talk about these other issues, these besetting sins that I am, am struggling with because those make me feel bad. Leave those alone. By the way, I want to be in charge. I want to make all the decisions. Right? The church exists to serve me, accommodate me, do what I want it to do instead of saying, I am here to serve others. I am here to bless others. I am here to, to follow Jesus with others. I am here to, to help others follow Jesus with me, and I am here so that other people can help me follow Jesus with them. The same selfishness, the same worldliness, the same presumption that God owes us something, God owes us the life that we want, the church owes it to us to make sure that all of our preferences are met to our liking. That's the mindset of this unrepentant thief in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save me. So verse 39, we see uh, the, the ridicule. Verse 40, we see the rebuke. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, right? right? Uh, the, the second thief, the repentant thief, recognizes, uh, recognizes that what's going on beneath, the, the, beneath the, the ridicule, beneath the railing of the first thief is a lack of fear of God. He's saying, you would not insult Jesus the way that you just did if you, if you feared God. You wouldn't be looking out for yourself and for what benefit that you can extract from Jesus if you feared God. You wouldn't be trying to leverage Jesus' sovereignty for your personal benefit if you feared God. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He's saying, he's saying, look, of all the times, right, three men dying on the cross, nailed to a cross, he's saying of all the times that, you, that it would make sense, that you, of, of all the times in your life for when you might actually indicate that you, that you fear God, right? If there was going to be one moment in your entire life, decades on this planet, when you fear God, it would be now. It would be right now when you are actually experiencing the judgment and the condemnation of that God. We are literally suffering under his punishment right now. There, there are few things that will evoke or bring about the fear of God in a person's heart as swiftly and as effectively as experiencing his condemnation and his righteous wrath. If you were ever going to fear God, you'd think that it would be now, this moment right now. So verse 39, we've got a ridicule from the first thief. Verse 40, the rebuke, verse 41. 
uh, the repentance. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Here's what he's saying. I am acknowledging publicly right now in front of you, the other thief, in front of Jesus, in front of all of these people that are here watching, I am acknowledging that the judgment of God in my life, the punishment of God that is falling on me, it's not injustice, it's not wrong, God is not some ogre for punishing me. The judgment of God, the punishment of God is good and right. God's not wrong for allowing me to experience it as if I'm some perfectly spotless moral example. I am not innocent and God is not some ogre. Quite the contrary. I am guilty. I am receiving the the due reward for my deeds. I've broken the law of God. And the reason why I've broken the law of God is because I've loved other things more than I've loved God. Right? He's, he's confessing to the, the behavior of saying, I have, 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 you know, I'm guilty of, of theft, which is what we see in Matthew 27. But he's also confessing to the, the underlying heart posture beneath it. Sinful behavior is always born out of idolatry in our hearts, right? Like a tree, you've got fruit on the surface above the ground, and that's kind of born out of the roots that are residing beneath the surface, beneath the ground. The fruit of sinful behavior, conflict, lying, cheating, stealing, violence, is born out of the root of idolatry in our hearts, loving other things more than we love God. That's why James says in chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels among you? What causes fights and conflict among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The fruit of conflict, fighting, anger, is born out of misplaced, misdirected passions, desires, and affections. Martin Luther said this about the the Ten Commandments, really all the commandments, hundreds of them. Um, But he looked at the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And Martin Luther said, you can't break any, any of the, the other nine commandments, right? Committing adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, any of the other hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament, you can't break any of those commands without first breaking the first commandment. Without first loving someone else or something else more than you love God. Without having some other God before the one true God. Because all those other commandments deal with the fruit of behavior, whereas the first commandment deals with the root of worship and the root of what's in your, what's in your heart. And so this thief here, he says, he says what I'm experiencing, this, this judgment from God is just because I'm receiving the due reward for my deeds. I've, I've, I've demonstrated the fruit of sinful behavior that's born out of the root of a heart that loves other things more than I love God, and I am guilty. I'm, I'm owning my share of the blame in it. I take full responsibility for it. Uh, I own it. I've sinned against God. I'm deserving of his judgment and his punishment and his righteous wrath because of my sin. And that's why this repentant thief 
is something of a prototype for what it looks like to come to Christ in faith. Because that's what, that's what it starts with. Coming to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, being reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus starts with this heart posture. It starts with this mindset. The judgment of God in my life is right and just and true. I deserve it and I make, I, I, I am done trying to politic. I'm done trying to play tennis and kind of bounce the blame to someone else. I'm going to own sin before God. I am guilty and God's judgment is right and good. I stand condemned before him silent and accountable to him like we read in Romans 3, right? The suffering that I'm experiencing, I'm not perplexed by it as if something strange were happening to me like we see in 1 Peter 4. Rather, suffering is the due reward for my deeds. I have no right to demand anything from God. I have no right to even ask of anything from God. which sets up this kind of, this irony, this like um, unexpected shift from verse 41 to 42, right? In verse 41, he's saying, I am going to own my sin before God. I'm going to acknowledge that I have no right to ask God for anything. If I spend all of eternity trying to be as good of a person as I can, I will never ever have one ounce of leverage before God by which I can ask him of anything. And then verse 42 I'm going to ask him something. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The ridicule, the rebuke, the repentance, now the request. This is an outrageous request given what he just said in this very same breath, right? Verse 42, verse 41, dovetailing into verse 42 should be, you know, just like the, the music stops, right? Like it's, it's supposed to cause a double take. I can't believe that someone would have the audacity to ask something like that after they just owned up to something like that. I can't believe that anyone, right? right? God, I just got finished saying that I am... Uh, I am a sinner. It's, it's right and just for this punishment and judgment to fall on me. I just got finished saying that I am not a righteous person. I am not a godly person. And now I'm going to ask you to remember me and to bring me with you into your kingdom, which, as it turns out, is reserved for righteous people. It's reserved for godly people. I just got finished saying I'm not righteous and I'm not godly, and now I'm going to ask you, even in spite of that, for you to bring me into this place that's reserved for righteous people and godly people, people that love God, people that worship God, people that are faithful to God, people that love their neighbors, people that are kind and merciful and gracious. That's who your kingdom is for. I have not loved God. I have not loved my neighbor. I've stolen from them. I've done violence to them. By my own admission, I meet none of the criteria to enter into the kingdom of God. And I'm asking you to bring me into the kingdom of God. This is absurd. This is outrageous. No one in their right mind would ever ask for something like that after just admitting to and confessing something like they just did. 
And yet, that's exactly what every Christian does when they come to Christ. Every Christian, when they come to Christ, lives out and and kind of demonstrates the spirit of verse 41, confessing our sin, bowing before God, lying prostrate before Him, acknowledging that we need Him and that His judgment in our life is good and right and true. And every Christian, when we come to Christ, takes the posture of verse 42, saying, Jesus, please save me. I just got finished saying that you have no obligation to save me. I've divested myself of any leverage that I had, right, saying that you uh, should save me, and yet I'm asking, even in spite of all that, please save me when you come into your kingdom. I deserve wrath and judgment, but please save me anyway. My sin has disqualified me from your kingdom, and yet please bring me into it anyway. Please look past my failings and shortcomings and find it within yourself to save me and and bless me, not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's the tension, just unilateral surrender, confessing, and bold, audacious uh, requesting and, and, and asking. That's the tension that every Christian walks when we come to Christ. Repentance and faith. Confession of sin and trusting in Jesus. Which, to be sure, is contrary to every natural tendency that we might, right, that we might have. Our, our, everything in us, the, the, the worldly mindset that we're kind of you know, inclined toward is constantly saying, you have to be good enough. Try hard enough, do enough, earn enough so that you can then come to the negotiating table with God and you can have some leverage and you can make some demands and you can get what you are owed. Or, if you're not good enough, then, then, then don't even bother with asking because it's a lost cause. Right? Get back to work, try harder, do better until you are good enough so that you can, at that point, come back to the negotiating table and get what you are owed at that point. The default system of every heart says, de- demand what you are owed or, or don't ask for anything at all. The prospect of confessing our sin and then humbly asking Jesus to save us even though he is under no obligation to do so is what faith in Christ looks like. And, and it is contrary to every natural instinct that we're born into this world with. We also see it on display in Psalm 51. David's psalm that he writes after being caught in adultery with Bathsheba. I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 51 because it really shows us the same exact heart posture as we see from this repentant thief. He says, God... Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Lord, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment of me. And yet, even with that in view, Lord, 
Purge me with hyssop so that I might be clean. Wash me so that I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a new heart, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Open my lips so that I can declare your praise. Lord, you delight in sacrifice, or you do not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, or else I would offer it. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a contrite spirit. Here's what David exhibited in Psalm 51. It's what this thief exhibits here in verses 41 and 42. Your judgment against me is just and right. I, I forfeit my right to object to it. And please save me even in spite of myself and my sin. Got the ridicule, the rebuke, the repentance, the request, and now Jesus' response in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, the request of the second thief, we look, right? Verse 41, leading into verse 42, is ridiculous. It's insane. It, it, that is an audacious request to make, right? No one, no one in their right mind would ever... Make a request like that. It's like if someone, someone came up to your car and keyed it and then slashed your tires and then broke your windshield with a baseball bat and then asked you to buy them a new car. That's, that's what, right? He, he's saying, I am guilty of sin that has brought this judgment on my life. Now will you please save me and bring me into your kingdom with, with me. So as, as audacious and as ridiculous as that request is in verse 42, so is the response from Jesus in verse 43. It is as audacious, it is as, it is as extravagant as the, the request was presumptuous. Today, I say to you, you will be with me. In, so imagine, someone keys your car, breaks the windshield, and then, and then follows it up with, by the way, can you buy me a new car? And then that person says, no, I'll, I'll buy you a house. Right? It's, it's, as, uh, it's as extravagant as the, the, the request was ridiculous. It's, it's a radical departure from what you would expect. But here's why Jesus responds this way. Because Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sufferers. Jesus is gentle and lowly and he is drawn to, he is magnetically inclined to sinners. And if if sinners turn from their sin, if sinners look to Jesus for grace, he cannot help but lavish grace on them. Jesus loves sinners sinners. One theologian says, Jesus can no more bring himself to stiff arm sinners and sufferers 
than the loving father of a newborn child can bring himself to stiff arm his dear child. Jesus is drawn to sinners. And he never, ever fails to save repentant sinners. He never, ever fails to save sinners who look to him and trust in him. If you want to I'm not a betting person, but if you want to make a bet, if you want a sure thing to bet your net worth on, it's that Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails to save sinners who repent and turn to Him. Many of us are inclined to approach Jesus with some degree of timidity or trepidation, some sort of hesitance to make any sort of request that we feel is too bold for Jesus, right? Because of everything that I've done, everything that's been done to me, it's doubtful that Jesus would ever accept me. At best, I might squeak in to the kingdom of God, be allowed to stand quietly in the corner, but there's no way that God could love me that much and accept me that much. Jesus loves sinners. He loves sinners. No matter what they have done, where they have been, no matter how unlikely it seemed that they would come to Him in faith, Jesus loves sinners. And if they turn from their sin and trust in Him, He will never, ever fail to save them. We don't need to come before God with timidity or trepidation. Or some sort of outsized fear that he's going to reject us instead. Hebrews 4 says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness. Knowing that we will, not we might, we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. You can't make a request like this criminal makes without boldness and confidence that Jesus will help you in your time of need. You cannot come to Jesus with true repentance and true faith if you have a deficient view of the heart of God or of the willingness of God to save sinners. You can only make a request like this guy and you can only come to Jesus if you believe that God's heart is big And that his grace for sinners is is big. And that his grace is bigger. It's greater than your sin. And the essence of the Christian life is from the moment you trust in Christ until the moment you die. This long, slow journey of, of unlearning the deficient view of the heart of God that you had. And relearning relearning the heart of God on God's terms as he puts forth in his word. Dane Ortland says, The Christian life is, from one angle, the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is fall away over many decades and letting it be slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And this is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and it takes a lot of suffering to begin to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. 
This thief on the cross makes a bold request for Jesus to remember him and bring him home. And Jesus gives an extravagant response of assuring him and promising him, I will remember you. I will bring you home. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can trust me. You can count on me. Friend, if you've ever had doubts, if your faith has ever wavered, this text should give you hope. If you've ever wondered if God could really love you the way that he says he does in his word, in light of your sin or your baggage, this text assures you that he can and that he does. If you've ever wondered if you might have disqualified yourself from receiving God's grace or, or somehow put yourself outside of the reach of it, this text assures you that you have not, you can not. Jesus loves to save sinners, and Jesus will never, ever fail to save sinners who come to him. He will never reject them, never cast them out. That leaves us with one final question to consider as we close this morning. Right? We've seen the heart of Christ for sinners. We've seen the surety of salvation for those who come to Christ. And the question we're left with is, uh, what do we do in light of it? How are we to respond to these gospel truths that we see in these verses? And the reality is we can proceed in one of two ways. We can go the way of the first criminal in verse 39, or we can go the way of the second criminal in verses 40 to 42. Right? We can say, God... I expect, I demand, I presume that you are going to give me what I want. You're going to meet my needs, meet my demands. I care more about my life and my comfort and my preferences right here, right now, than I care about spending eternity with you. Give me what I want. Fix my situation. We can march into the presence of God, puffed up with pride, feeling slighted because we haven't gotten our way. Or we can come into the presence of God humbly because of our sin and yet at the same time boldly because of God's grace. J.C. Ryle says, On that day, one thief was saved so that no sinner will ever despair. But only one thief was saved so that no sinner might ever presume. This text is good news for all of us. It tells us in no uncertain terms that God's grace is available for us, even the worst of sinners. It tells us that there's nothing that we could ever do that will put us outside of the reach of God's grace. And this text is also a warning to us, a brushback pitch to us, right? It's saying, absolutely, God's grace is free. Absolutely, God's grace is available to the worst of sinners. But it only comes to those who approach God in humility, who confess their sin, who look to Jesus for their salvation. Jesus will never, ever fail to save anyone who confesses their sin and looks to him and trusts in him. And Jesus will never, ever 
save anyone who refuses to confess their sin to him and trust him for their salvation. One sinner was saved, one thief was saved so that no sinner might despair, but only the repentant thief was saved so that no sinner might presume. The question, what are we to do in light of these two, in light of these two criminals? Turn away from our natural tendency to act like the first criminal. It's all about me, give me what I want, and instead take on the posture of the second criminal. Humble, trusting, God, I am a sinner. Your judgment in my life is just and right and appropriate. And even still, even in spite of that, please save me. Not because you are obligated to, but because I am I'm asking you to treat me better than I deserve to be treated. Please remember me. Please save me. Please bring me home and please keep me. When you come to Jesus like that, He will never, ever fail you. The bridge of grace will bear your weight. And Jesus will bring you home and Jesus will keep you forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you with the same spirit, the same heart posture as this repentant thief confessing our sin, acknowledging that your judgment against our sin is right and just and true, acknowledging that we are deserving of punishment. And yet even in spite of that, Lord, we come to you boldly asking you to save us. Throwing ourselves upon your mercy, looking to you and hoping in you and trusting in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.